everyone and thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the INC podcast. My name is Carl Bainbridge and fortunately Claire Richardson is lost somewhere in the realms of the internet but I have been joined by a very special guest, a great friend of the show. It is the British MMA promoter Ray Thompson. Ray, thank you very much for joining me on short notice. Uh, my pleasure Carl, thanks for having me on the show. Very much so. Uh, it always seems to be a thing that you always seem to be jumping in on short notice for a lot of these projects that we have on the go because I remember it was UFC 242 I think the Khabib Poirier card and yeah. we were struggling to get some guests for the actual preview show so I sent a message out on Facebook and just said hey if there's anybody up in the northeast of England who wants to talk for an hour maybe get a bit of money uh, please do so. We answered the call and I think that preview show turned out quite well there. Yeah it was very good it was, it was certainly enjoyable to be part of anyway. Did, you, did all your predictions come true in that fight? Of course not, no. Who can, who can make predictions and get them right all the time? Well, if it makes you feel better, Claire predicted the cowboy would be Connor. Yeah, you know what? I was I was so much willing for Cowboy to beat Connor, but it was it wasn't to be. I was quite surprised at the at the way that fight went. And not the way that not the fact that Connor won, but the, the way he won so easily. That's that yes. surprised me to be honest. And it was disappointing as well because I think had Cowboy been able to pretty much get started, it could have been more of an intriguing fight. But we know the Cowboy's a slow start, and we know that Connor comes out guns blazing, and it was sadly somewhat inevitable what was going to happen. I think we sort of wanted to deny it because we wanted a better fight, but that's the way the sport works sometimes. Yeah, it was a shame, but that, like you say, what can you do? That's, that's just what happens, isn't it? It's the nature of... Uh, of of combat sport you know one one punch one kick one you know it can change everything can't it and i think in mixed martial arts especially when you have a sport where there are so many variables when you've got like four arm gloves which are game changing you could just land that perfect punch and your rest of your career is either made or ruined yeah exactly especially when you get to the the, the bigger weight classes up as well i mean we've seen it with the heavyweights where you know fights in particular, they just seem to change in, in one moment, don't they? There is, however, going to be no change when it comes to how we approach this show. We've still got four big discussion topics from the world of mixed martial arts over the past week. We've got a couple of viewer questions which will be coming later in the show. And we'll be discussing with Ray in a bit more detail his plans for Almighty Fighting Championship and how his uh, company has been affected, obviously, with the global pandemic. We're trying to start, though, on a cheery note, which is after three and four weeks of waiting around, hoping for anything that could be happening in the world of MMA. Once again, Dana White is persevering. He tried to put on UFC 249. That got pretty much pretty much ruined by uh, ESPN. But he has persevered. Now the plan is, May the 9th, we will be back underway. So UFC 249 reportedly going to be taking place on May the 9th. Not entirely sure where the location is at this moment in time. I know that Dana has been trademarking the Fight Island. I think that's just trying to lead people on. We talked about this myself and Claire um, on last week's show that we thought that this was maybe a bit of a publicity stunt. If it is going to be taking place, indications are that it could possibly be in Florida. They're looking to try and um, relieve some of the uh, restrictions which are in place. Nevada, of course, with the performance center over there. So we just start with UFC 249 on a whole there. Should this card still be taking place? 
you know what? It's a real strange one because we obviously we're all eager to be able to watch some kind of combat sport. You know, we all love MMA. That's why we why we do what we do. So one part of me saying yes, I want to see some fights. I want to see some high level fights like you're going to get on these shows, on this show. But then I'm, there's a few things that that makes that kind of concern me, if you like. So firstly, obviously we've got the, the you know the pandemic going on. So is it safe for these guys to be competing? Because of course, you know, social distancing goes out the window when they're doing stuff like this. And we're being told at the moment, you, you know, you shouldn't be going to within, you know, two, two meters of people. So firstly, I'm thinking, is it safe for these guys to compete? Because they're obviously all, they're all going to be away with their, their families or whatever. So they're going to come together. If one person's infected, that means that the chances are they're all going to get passed on, blah, 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 blah. So that's the one thing. The other thing that, that I suppose it really gets me, that, that what I can't understand is, how are people training at the moment to, to be ready to be able to go in and compete uh, at the level these guys compete at? Because obviously with social distancing, gyms are all closed. And I know that's the case in the UK. I'm assuming that's the case in the US as well. So they can't go and train with their normal partners. They can't be pushed in training. They can't spar. They can't have a coach who's uh, making sure they're doing what they need to do to get ready. So how how, how match fit are they going to be? Because we, we, always, we all know there's a difference between being fit and being fight fit. So I'd be concerned with that side as well. Personally, I think they shouldn't do it. I think they should just wait for it all to be done and then we can all get back to normal together. I know WrestleMania, WWE did, did an event with, they did it over two nights. I haven't watched that. Uh, I've looked at the feedback and some people said it was good. Some people said it was really strange because it was obviously in an, an empty venue. Uh, and of course, they played for the crowd a lot more than what they do in the in MMA, of course. But yeah, I suppose, you know, my head's, my head's saying no, my heart's saying yes. I'm in a very similar boat. I think that as a sporting fan, I would like to see events taking place. Um, but I'm very similar to you. I think there's a health and safety side to it. But you mentioned there what the WWE are doing. Obviously, they're holding their shows in the Performance Center. And I have no issue with doing that for like their weekly shows and just getting out some content to try and keep uh, the marketing men happy, try and keep in some viewers. But when it comes to something like, like a WrestleMania, for example, as much as I, I caught bits of the show, I enjoy bits of the show, but I think something like that needs the crowd. It needs to feel like a big stadium event. And I think that's maybe the issue I have with UFC 249 on a whole. I mean, if this was like a fight night and it was just doing stuff like, I don't know, Anthony Smith versus Glover Toshiba, having a couple of the lesser fighters on the card, I don't think any of us would have a problem with it. And while this is a fantastic card on paper, I mean, we've got three title fights on there, the undercard stacked as well. You shouldn't be holding a show like that in an empty stadium where you've got a few... I don't think, think, even think we're going to have cameraman. It's going to be like the referee, the commentary team, all the health and safety professionals, and that's it. I feel like what the UFC should do is hold this sort of big epic super show for the first event when we get the crowds back? I mean, it's a, it's the fight card's ridiculous. It's what, you know, it's it's like, it's a super card, there's no doubt. I mean, there's fights further down the card that would be headlining the TV card easily, uh, if not on a main card of a, of a pay-per-view. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I want to be able to see it again, but I'd rather we, we hold out and get all this, this big thing that's going on, get this all fixed and get back to normal so we can all get back to living living our lives and I just think you know something like this when we're being told we're not to spread the virus something like this is a, is a danger 
It is, it is massive danger. I think that, and we've even even I'm, I'm following like Joe Rogan's. Whoa, we're getting a lot of static there. I'm following Joe Rogan's uh, podcast, and he is very very strenuous about the processes he would go through to even actually get to the event. And we don't even know where the event's going to be taking place as well. Um, in terms of that card, though, obviously we've got three title fights. Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gagey is still penciled in to be the main event. That could be, I mean, regardless of, I know everybody wanted to see Khabib versus Tony Ferguson, but that's a hell of a fight. It is a hell of a fight. And, you know, Ferguson Khabib is, has got so much history to it, so why we're all eager to see that fight. But I think Ferguson and Gagey, style-wise, have got to be probably the two most exciting fighters in the division. So to put them together, you can't see how that can be a boring fight, to be honest. What did you make of Tony trying to cut weight? Because that was a big sort of mini story going on that even though UFC 249 wasn't taking place, it was supposed to be taking place today actually, we were recording this on the Sunday, he still could wait for that. Which I think a lot of people were sort of trying to play it into this whole, whoa, Tony Ferguson, he's so crazy, he's so wacky, but surely a lot of fighters do sort of demo weight cuts to know exactly what they need to go through when it matters the most. I don't know. I mean, Ferguson is known for being quite wacky anyway. I think people might do demo weight cuts when they're sampling out a new weight, maybe. So if they're dropping down from 155 to 145. But I wouldn't see the point of him doing a demo weight cut at a weight he's been fighting at for the last few years. Because he's that's he's been at that weight class indefinitely, hasn't he? He's, I mean, he obviously did the ultimate fighter at the higher weight class, but that's quite common. But he's been at, he's been at lightweight for, forever it seems. So I, I didn't I wouldn't see the point of him demoing for that if you know what I mean. If he was dropping down again, I could understand it. So I don't think he's doing it as a demo. I just think he's, he's he is a bit of an unusual character, isn't he, Tony? He doesn't do things the way that you're supposed to do things, if you like. Because I I was reading what Roxanne Modafferi was saying. Uh, she was talking about Tony going through this record, and she was saying that when she was in the Ultimate Fighter house, uh, when she was on Ronda and Misha's season. I think one of the girls was sort of complaining, saying that she didn't think she would have enough time to do a short notice weight cut. And based on what she was saying, Ronda actually did a 135 weight cut to say, hey, it can be done in this short space of time. Yeah. I think I remember that, actually. But again, that's just Ronda's mentality of leading by example. She, she kind of had this very tough competitive upbringing where because her mum obviously did what she did and she was she was very successful and she's kind of drilled it into Ronda and she's done it she's done it with Ronda by leading by example and I suppose in that position with Ronda being the, the head coach she wasn't just going to tell somebody yes she can do it she was going to show somebody yes she can do it and I think that was that personally just rouses mentality any opinions on her recent comments to the uh, WWE fans uh, I think it's a shame, really, because I think we all know what WWE is, but at the same time, you know, they, they do a brilliant job. I mean, I, I like watching wrestling. I enjoy it. I think it's uh, excellent. It's a great entertainment. You know, you know, we know it's not. We know it's uh, staged. We know that the, the, the finishes are scripted. We also know anyone that enjoys wrestling, you know, they don't have, they do some amazing stunts. That they, they put everything into it. So, yeah, I, I personally think it was disrespectful. I mean, you know, she, she was a she she was a phenomenal fighter, but let's be fair, she she met a match uh, after Holly Holm. She wasn't the same. I mean, Amanda Nunes just rolled through her like she was nothing. Holly Holm fight was competitive, but Nunes fight wasn't competitive. Uh, and then she went. She then opted to go and do wrestling. She chose that. If she did, if she if she didn't if if she felt like that about it and was going to 
do, drag it down. She shouldn't have got involved with it. And they gave her they gave her a pretty good platform. And to go on to become one of the first women to headline WrestleMania, that's huge. So I, I think it was a bit of a kick in the teeth, personally. I'm fairly certain it's a working on. Yeah? I do. Because they, they've tried this sort of thing before, Ronda saying things which apparently seem real, but it's all part of the show. And I mean, what a good way to sort of get the crowd riled up and come back when the crowd's obviously are ready to attend shows again and just be this massive heel. Because I watched a lot of her video logs as well. Uh, when she actually did turn heel, and she was loving it. She was loving the fact that she was playing the bad guy. She was always pretty much a heel in MMA anyway, more so from after the Ultimate Fighter with Misha Tate. I mean, how could you how could you like her after the way she was with Misha Tate? I mean, she was, I mean, that's, she's an amazing fighter, so that, that, don't get me wrong, but the way, she, the way she carried herself in the house and the way she was uh, against Misha Tate, it, it wasn't pleasant to watch. It's a bit like uh, Joanna Jedrzejczyk when she fought against um, Claudia Gadella when they were in the house. She didn't come across well, so she's always been a bit of a heel anyway. So I could, she's, I could see her being a good heel. I'm under the impression she hasn't signed back with WWE though. That's why I thought that wouldn't be a word. But if it is, it's brilliant. If it's not, I think it's, it's quite spiteful personally. Normally, when the com- when somebody leaves the company the uh, WWE like to um, sort of not mention them sort of blackball them not mention them on any programming and the fact they still are just makes me think hmm something might be a bit up here I don't know but when Bret Hart left they, they dragged his name through the mud afterwards if you remember true true the whole uh, Montreal screw job they, they mocked him they brought dwarfs in and, and did it all over again they even played it all back again with Mankind losing to The Rock. I know this is a, not a wrestling podcast, but so I don't think they genuinely... I think they, they obviously deal with everyone differently, but Ronda Rousey is a huge, huge star, just like Bret Hart was at the time. He moved over to WCW. So I don't suppose they do that for everybody, but I'm under the impression she's not coming back. Shall we try and get this back on um, back in context, though, in the world of mixed martial arts? Yes, let's do that. We shall do. And one of the other big stories that was coming out in regards to recent MMA stories is our second topic, if I can actually get my finger on the button there, which is reports over who John Jones's next opponent could be. Now, this stems from an interview which was done by Dominic Rias, where he seemed to imply that the UFC were wanting to run his fight back. Obviously, they fought UFC 247. Very, very close fight. A lot of people thought Dominic Rias won that. I'm personally in that bracket myself. However, all indications seem to be that John Jones doesn't want that fight. He would rather fight Jan Blachowicz. Reasons for that, we're not entirely sure. We'll probably be discussing that in a little bit more detail right now. So, first off, which of these two fights would you most be interested in? Obviously, John Jones versus Dominic Reyes, or do we get a new bit of blood in there in Jan Blachowicz? Reward him for a fantastic run of form recently. I like I like both fights. Uh, I, I'm with you. I thought Reyes won the first fight. It, it was close, but I thought I thought going when they read the decision out, I thought Reyes had, had got the nod and the commentators did. So when they went the other way, it was a surprise. But Blakovic has looked great recently, and his last win was it the team? Was it the, he got a knockout against somebody? Corey Anderson. Mon- Say that again, sorry. Corey Anderson. Yeah, I mean that was that was a super impressive win. Because Corey's been on a hell of a run himself, especially after beating Johnny Walker. So to beat him the way he did uh, was pretty emphatic. And I always say it's not—it's not how—it's not the fact you're winning; it's how you're winning. And he—he was—he won in style. So I think I would 
I'd personally, if it was, if I was to make the decision, and I know I don't make the decision, I'd have Blakovic uh, going now, and I'd like to see Reyes get have one fight away from uh, the title. If he wins that fight, then he's a number one contender again because he's done enough. They can sell a rematch because of how close the first fight was, but I'm not really a big fan of instant rematches. I know we've seen it, we have seen it quite a few times, but I'd like to see him go away and fight somebody else, then come back to it. I'm in the same boat. I, I, I like instant rematches if it's like a long-standing champion who loses the belt, maybe a bit of an upset and say, was this a fluke or are we genuinely seeing like a changing of the guard? So when Rose beat Yuan and they ran that fight back, I didn't have an issue with that. Should have done the same yeah. thing with Aldo versus Connor, USC 184. Yeah. Um, I'm not really swayed on John Jones versus Dominic Rias immediately. So I'm the same as you, I'd probably favour Blachowicz between the two. My one issue with doing the Blachowicz fight though is we've started to see a template of how to beat John Jones. You need somebody who can work the leg kicks, you need somebody who can pretty much scare him with that sort of explosive power. So that's what Thiago Santos did and that's what Dom did very well in their first fight. I yeah. don't think Blachowicz has that. And I think that if John and Jan were to fight, I see something similar to what happened against Glover, with John just neutralising that sort of round one power and then cruising to an easy decision. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so hard to forecast. I mean, jo Jones is one of these that when he first came on the scene, he was so explosive and he was literally putting everybody away. And then as he's, obviously, he's had his problems away from the Oxford. I'm not really going to talk about that. But then as he's got later on in his career, with the fights he's had, they've always seemed to be a lot closer than what his fights used to be. I mean, obviously, his, his fights with Gustafsson, uh, you've mentioned there about um, Thiago Silvery, Anthony Smith as well. They all pushed him a lot more than what you thought they would. So you, you almost feel like it's on the brink now of him, if there being a change of the guard, of him losing that title. And I just think that people are so used to, you, like you say, of how he fights that they're able to compete against that. And you know what? Blakovic has, has earned that chance to go out there and do that. And I know what you're saying about what he's done previously, but who's to say that he wouldn't change up? I mean, I never thought that Reyes would push him the way he did. I didn't think Anthony Smith would. I didn't think Thiago Santos would. Especially Smith and Santos coming up from middleweight. But they've all come in and they've all... like. I remember thinking Thiago Santos was close to winning that fight as well. They've all come in and made their fights really, really competitive with Jones and, and been unlucky not to not to get the win. So I, I think Blackovich has earned the right to, to be given that shot, to be honest. I think if the Corey Anderson versus Yarn fight had been the sort of five-round slog, I would have leaned more towards uh, Dominic Rias. But with Yarn doing that, and against the grain as well, because Corey Anderson went into that fight as, I think it was something like a two-to-one favourite. So I think that made a lot of people sit up and take note of Jan, who, as you mentioned before, he's just been slowly climbing the ladder. He's been getting a lot of good wins as well. Um, I think it would be just rewards for him. And I think it'd be good for Polish MMA as well, because obviously it's been like the Joanna show over there for a long time. And to have another European on the, on the scene would be beneficial for, I think, for the sport on the whole. Yeah, and I mean, Blackwich has been doing well for a while now. He's, you know, he's been top, you know, in and, in and around the top five for a long time. And I mean, he, for me, he's earned the shot. That's the only way I can put it. He's earned the shot. He's ready to be, regardless of how the fight goes, he has earned that shot. You know, he's, his last win was super impressive against a guy who he was, one he was expected to lose to. Uh, and obviously, he, would, the, he had just beat the, 
the up-and-coming superstar uh, in a way that none of us really expected either when he, the way he rolled through Johnny Walker. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd like to see Blakovic. And then if Reyes can go away and get a win, win his next fight, then make him the, the number one contender for the winner of the Blakovic-Jones fight. Who would you book uh, Dominic Rias against then, if we're going with uh, John versus Jan? Because there's been rumours that he could be the comeback fight for Thiago Santos. Um, I'm hearing that Anthony Smith might be rescheduled, so it maybe makes sense for them to do Rias versus Smith. What sort of name would you be looking at? Well, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, I like both the names you just said there. I'm just trying to think who else is near the top of the the 205 vision. You want him to be in against a top five guy because he, you know, the winner of that fight really should be in line for a title fight. So a top five guy for me uh, would make would make sense. Uh, but both the names you said, I mean, I'd love to see Thiago Santos back. He looked absolutely amazing uh, up and up, 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 you know, up until the Jones fight, and of course he's he he left that. I mean, we all found out afterwards how injured he was, and he kept on fighting. It was just phenomenal. So I mean, if he's ready to come back, that would be great because either of them guys who win, if Jones beats Blakovic, which I think a lot of people are expecting him to do, I'd be happy to watch any of those guys against Jones because they both pushed Jones to the limit on their last fight. Just look, I'm just looking at the rankings here. Obviously, we've got John Jones as the champion, Dominic Rias number one, uh, two Thiago Santos, three Smith, four Blakovic, five Corey Anderson, and then you're looking at Volkan, Gus, Glover. Glover's number eight. Glover's slowly climbed his way back into the top ten. Gus has retired, hasn't he? Was he still... It's. I think it's one of those MMA retirements where they sort of, in that moment, just say, hey, I've given up, I don't want to do this anymore, and then I think the urge comes back. Because there was that thing with Paul Felder as well. Felder teased retiring after losing the um, Dan Hooker fight, but he's yeah. rescinded that recently. Oh, okay. Uh, I think out of the names you just mentioned, I think, for me... If I was, to, if I could choose, I'd go for Thiago Silva. I think some of those names you mentioned, like Corey Anderson. Now he's after his loss, you know that fight doesn't really appeal to me. Uh, and even Balkan Oldsmar, he's a bit further down in my in my estimation as well. So I think it would be Thiago Smith, uh, Thiago Silva. If not him, then I'd probably go for Anthony Smith. The big appeal about the uh, Volkan fight as well was there was a lot of controversy about Volkan versus Rias one because a lot of people thought Volkan won that. There's a lot of that scene in the post afterwards saying, Vulcan saying, you know, you you got the, the joke decision over me and now it's calm, I'll come back on you. So yeah, that, that fight would maybe make sense. I'm trying to think, did, is, did, is Vulcan coming off of a loss or coming off of a win? He beat Alexander Rakic. That was quite controversial as well. Yeah, I don't know. I think I still prefer the Thiago Silva fight for me personally. I think that would be, uh, Thiago Santos, sorry. That would be the one I'd like to see. I tell you what, considering all the grief the light heavyweight had a couple of years ago, it is stacked right now. We've got a lot of promising young talent in that division. Yeah. I, I've always liked the light heavyweight division. I mean, I remember you going back when it was, the, you know, right in the old days when, when Pride came across and you had your Chuck Liddell and Randy Couture and Tito Ortiz, then, then you added in Shogun and Vandalay Silver and... And Rampage Jackson. I mean, I've, and then of course you have people like Forrest Griffin and Rashad Evans. I've always liked that heavyweight division. I've always think it's been quite a good division. Oh, it was a fantastic division around that sort of time. But there was a moment sort of around 2016, 2017, where it was sort of like John, DC, Gus, Rumble, and there was a big gulf between the rest of them. Actually, you know, I mentioned that. What about Rumble potentially coming back into the mix? 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there as well about the four you said. I think sometimes well, when you get a champion who's been as dominant as what Jones looks, it's the same when Anderson Silva was dominating the 185 division. I think when when he's beat so many of the people in that division, it makes the division look shallow. But I don't think it was shallow. I just think he was that good. Um, Rumble's on a back from back, but is he on a back from back at heavyweight? He seemed to imply he could be coming back at heavyweight, but I've looked at a couple of pictures of him. He does seem a lot leaner than he was when he first started getting back into training. I remember Rumble fighting at Welterweight, which is just mind-blowing when you look at him now. I remember Did... when he first burst onto the scene uh, and he was a Welterweight, and then he moved up to middleweight, and then he obviously ended up making his mark at the light heavyweight division after fighting and doing well away from UFC because he had issues with his weight, with his making weight. But I remember him on his, I think one of his first, it might have even been his first fight, he fought against a guy called Tommy Spear, who was from Auburn Fight. I think it was season seven, the one that Mac Danzig went. And he literally, oh, season six, sorry, he literally come out and smashed him in like 30 seconds. But how that guy ever made that weight, I just don't know. Didn't he get submitted by Koshek? Yeah, um, he got beat by quite a few, to be fair. He struggled against people who took him down. Uh, yeah, Koscheck was one that you mentioned. There were some of the names in there you'd look at and you'd think, how did they beat him? But but I remember him fighting Balfour and Balfour beat him by taking him down as well. Uh, or did he beat him on the feet? But I remember Vitor Balfour beating him as well. Uh, there, was a, there was a few that you'd be surprised at who beat him. But yeah, Koscheck, but at the time, Koscheck was one of the top 170s in the world. I mean, he had the five round fight with GSP as well. Yeah, no shame in losing to uh, Koshek, very highly rated fighter. Maybe not the best person in the world, but that's maybe for a different time. What we're going to be talking about next is, I need to talk to you about, what's your knowledge of kickboxing like, Ray? I'll be honest, I'm not great on kickboxing. It's always, MMA's always been my thing, so I've never really followed any of the other combat sports, apart from the guys that have switched over, like obviously Mark Hunt is the big one that jumps out. But yeah, I've never been that clued up on kickboxing, unfortunately. I ask that because it's going to be our next discussion topic because um, if you are big on kickboxing you might know the name Alex Pereira, Brazilian fighter, uh, best known to most people, he's a two-time glory kickboxing champion. Most people however know him because he was the last person to beat Israel Adesanya when they fought in kickboxing. We bring him up because there's been stories over the past couple of days, uh, he himself has denied them but one of his training partners, Loriano Staropoli, uh, seemed to imply that Pereira was considering uh, going full-time in an MMA career. He's had a couple of fights uh, with Jungle Fight where he has a 2-1 record, but he seemed to be implying that the UFC were interested in signing him, potentially try and cash in on that uh, Adesanya-Pereira bad blood. Um, I just want your opinions on whether this is a good thing from the UFC's perspective, should Pereira consider doing it, and if so, based on what we've seen with other kickboxing transitionees, could this be a success? Well, he's two and one, so that doesn't bode well. That's not a great record after three fights if he's this high-profile kickboxer. Uh, obviously, if he's got the history of Adesanya, that's what's going to interest people. And Adesanya is always going to be an interesting matchup because Adesanya will will more than likely strike with him because that's what Adesanya's done so far in his in his MMA career. Uh, but then, once if if he was to win the bout, for example, and become champion, what do you do then? Because you imagine anyone he faces that has got a solid takedown game, he's going to struggle against, where Adesanya has shown that he's got good takedown defence and he can keep a fight standing, but we haven't seen that from him yet. So I'm not overly keen on the switchovers personally. I think if you want to come and fight in MMA, you need to do what everyone else does. You need to work your way up through the system. So you need to go and fight on 
these shows like you said jungle fight there do well on those fight on those shows do well on the regional shows and if, if you do well enough and you've got a good enough record then the ufc picks you up but yeah I'd, it's not something that appeals to me personally i've seen that many people come and go with this big background from another sport that it just it doesn't always switch over because mma is just so different to the other combat sports i'm in a very similar boat there i think i've actually watched his fights which he had with jungle fight and he did seem to embrace the grappling game. I mean, at times in his first fight, the one that he lost, he was actually trying to go for arm bars. He was trying to sort of embrace the clinch side of the sport. But what let him down was basically inexperience. And I think that's something that will obviously be honed out of him when it comes to training full time. I'm with you though. I think with kickboxing especially, there are a lot of kickboxers who can be successful, can make the way through there. But as you said before, what Adesanya did very well was he went right from the bottom. He started on the regional scene, worked his way up, so that by the time he made it to the UFC, he was ready for that promotion. What I fear is going to happen is we're going to get a sim situation similar to Gokan Saki. Uh, acclaimed kickboxer, came in, I think he only had one MMA fight when he joined the UFC. And then what happened, Khalil Roundtree knocked him out in the first round and we haven't heard anything from him since. Yeah, the other one I think about as well is, is uh, I know it's different because it's not kickboxing, but it's CM Punk. You know, I know he was a pro wrestler, but he had this massive, massive uh, following. And they brought him in because of the following that he had. But he was never, ever, ever no. ready to fight, even on an Ultimate Fighter season or a contender series, never mind a pay-per-view of a main event. I mean, the fight lasted two minutes, and it was awful to watch because it was like watching somebody who trains MMA versus someone who doesn't. And it, just, it, was, it was terrible to watch. If you want to fight in the UFC, that means you're the best of the best. So you need to work your way up like everyone else. And the other name as well that this sort of reminds me of, trying to cash in on the idea of having a previous loss and trying to build someone up for that. Do you remember when the UFC signed Joe Duffy? Joe Duffy had this 36-second submission of Conor McGregor. Conor becomes yeah. this big star, so they think, hey, let's get Joe Duffy in. He's going to be a mega star. We're going to play on that feud. And... I mean, Joe Duffy is still a very good fighter, but there's a big gulf between where Connor is now and where Joe Duffy is. Yeah, I think there's a big gulf between where Connor is now and where everyone is, to be fair. But yeah, Joe Duffy's a, Joe Duffy's a, a, a fight past prelim fighter at best, isn't he? And, it, and that's not to take away from how good he is, but he's never been to one who's shone on the main card. Uh, and unless you're one of the... The hardcores, a lot of people probably aren't still going to know who he is, even though he had that win over McGregor, because it was such a long time ago as well, of course. It's really surreal watching it as well, because wasn't it a, I think it was a Cage Warriors show, and mm. you remember, like, you watch some of the promos before that fight, they talk about one another, that's one of the things that, I, I quite like that when the, on the regional shows, where they actually talk about what skills their opponent has, what they need to look out for. Um, yeah. I'm going off on a tangent a bit here, but just how mellow Connor was, just very this sort of like level-headed, normal lad, um, very really soft-spoken as well, and to see him transform from that into this loud bravado figure who's larger than life and is the biggest superstar in the sport, just complete transformation. Yeah, I'm personally not a fan of the transformation, but I met Connor uh, in Stockholm when he made his UFC debut against Marcus Brimage and I got a picture with him before in the fighter hotel before the day before and he was he was like a, an excited kid at christmas he was so happy to be there happy to be in the limelight and you know enjoying all the attention from people that were there but 
personally, I mean, obviously, what he what what he's done is amazing, but the way he's become, I'm I'm not a fan of personally. Yeah, I think it's it's a really fine line you need to walk because, especially with Connor, because a lot of Connor's success business wise has been this sort of larger than life bravado persona, but with that comes the sort of antagonistic side of it, and if it does go wrong, you're opening you up to a lot of ridicule and a lot of backlash if you can't live up to the trash talk yeah i mean apart from the odd loss he has lived up to the trash talk and when he's had the loss he's not he's not had any losses that i think are embarrassing i mean no. losing to the as the way he did that you know that he, he basically got caught with a with a few big punches uh, and and he kind of shot him to take to, for the takedown to rest well you can't do that against nate diaz there's no shame in that loss uh, and he, he kind of got that one back with, with the way the next fight went anyway, because even though he got tired in that fight, he never went to the ground again. And then, of course, against Khabib, Khabib's a different level when it comes to his wrestling. And, and wrestling is such a huge thing in MMA. Uh, and unless you can stop him from being able to wrestle, then you're not going to be able to beat him. And obviously, McGregor wasn't the person who could do that. I always find when it comes to judging fighters' losses that... We sort of, we gloss over the regional level losses because these guys are young, they're inexperienced and they couldn't get caught in submissions or with a, with a wayward punch, etc. So we sort of gloss over those and we also gloss over the sort of high profile losses when you start reaching sort of like the top 10s and the top 5s and just thinking, yeah, maybe you're just not ready for this step yet. It's those sort of middle level losses where you're sort of in the UFC but you're not really into the top 10 yet. Those are the ones which I... I sort of feel like the fans hold in more sort of value than they do the most. Because, I mean, bearing in mind what Stipe has done, like Stipe could, be, could arguably be the greatest heavyweight in UFC history. But all people will talk about is him losing the Struve. I was there as well for that one. That was in Nottingham. Was and what was, was the, what was if the... If you look back, that was, that's, when you look back now at, at Miocic... Not necessarily at the time they fought. So at the time he fought, it wasn't that big of a shock. Because uh, they were both kind of around the same level. They were both kind of in and around the top 10, but at the bottom end of the top 10 at the time they fought. So it wasn't that big of a surprise. But then you look at how Struve's career has gone since then and how Miocic's career has gone since then. It's quite mad to think that he lost that fight because Miocic has done so well since that point and has beat so many good people. Because he's had other losses. I mean, he lost to JDS. Uh, of course, he lost to DC. So he's had other losses, but he—he's obviously avenged both those losses. He never avenged the one with Struve. But the way Miocic's got on, and what he's gone on to do, for me, he's definitely the best heavyweight in the UFC of all time. And he's the only one—is it to have three title defenses? He's the only one to have done that. Which in that division, because like we said earlier on about the the landscape of that division changing so quickly because of the nature of of the one punch being able to end it all, and what he did with Francis Ngannou as well was quite impressive. The way he's able to shut him down. Yeah, I think. You know, Miocic, I don't think people hold too much weight in that loss, to be honest. But Miocic is, is for me, number one of heavyweight all time in the UFC. Do you think there's part of Steep here that wants to run that fight back just to say, hey, you can't hold that against me anymore? I don't think so. I mean, I I, I got to interview Steep quite a while ago when he was on his way up through the rankings. And he's not that kind of guy to, to hold, th- hold, hold on things like that. He's quite a... A respectful guy, he's quite a well-spoken, uh, I'd say softly spoken guy, from when I spoke to him anyway. And I just think, I mean, I don't think a win over Struve for anybody at this point means anything because 
you know, I think since Struve had the fight with Mark Hunt, he's never really been the same. That was such a brutal fight. I don't know how he'd come back and fought again after that, to be honest. So I don't think a win over Struve now would not do a, would do any benefit for Stipe at all. So we move on to uh, our topic number four. Now, this originally we were going to be talking about the story of uh, Molly McCann, some of the um, sort of things that she's revealed from her time working on Subway. But there has been a story which sort of caught our eyes. So we're going to be turning towards that one instead, which is it was a couple of years ago now that Vitor Belfort had signed a deal with one championship. Now, things have gone quite quiet in regards to that. A lot of people thought, what's well, this just a publicity stunt by one? Is Vito actually going to fight again at all? He has revealed that there were plans for him to compete in the promotion. They were arranging a fight. Obviously, the pandemic has put a halt to that. But all indications are Vito Belfort will be making one last run and it will be with one championship. So the only thing I see him going, the reason he's fighting there is because I, I'm not that clued up on one FC, but are, do they have the same kind of stigma rules with testing as what they have in the UFC, or is it a bit more like what it was like in Pride FC where they never did any testing? They have hydration tests, so fighters who would normally fight, say, a welterweight in the UFC are more likely going to be fighting at middleweight. Uh, there was okay. a fighter in one championship who died trying to get down to, um, I think, 125 pounds. Okay. Uh, so they poured in hydration tests. But in terms of steroids, it's quite vague in regards to how they approach it. But I look at the physiques of some of these guys and I'm thinking they're certainly not as strict as what the UFC are. See, I'm, if I remember rightly, the big thing with Vitor was TRT, wasn't it? TRT. So... If they're not going to be checking in on that, and we get the Vitor that went on that ramp of run where he was finishing everyone with head kicks, I remember Bisbin was one of the ones, and I think Dan Henderson as well, if I remember rightly. If we get that Vitor, but it's been that long since we've seen him, we've got no idea what he's really like now. I mean, he must be in his mid-40s, surely. I think he's... I'm tempted to say I think he's 41 now, but I've wow. seen some pictures of this guy on Instagram. He looks jacked. Yeah. I remember him fighting his UFC debut, which was UFC 12. And we're going back to before the year 2000. It's got to have been about... It would have been 1997, it would have been. And he was 18 then. So that's, what, 24 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's not normally a sport for the older person, but then we have had people in the past who have fought have fought when they're older and have done it you know, really, really well. And the, the one that jumps out, of course, is Randy Couture. But we've had other people who, once they get to a certain age, they lose the ability to take a punch or they lose that foot, that, that step, that speed. I mean, Chuck Liddell was one of the best guys in the world, but he got to a certain age and he just lost the ability to take a punch. And it depends on where Vitor's at. If he can still compete the way he used to, uh, then, you know, I'm all for it. I'd love to see him come back and do well. I love watching Vitor fight. But if it's going to be like a BJ Penn scenario where he's coming back, and he's just not where he where he was. I mean, BJ Penn was was a legend, but no one's thinking. People that are coming into the sport now, they don't know that BJ Penn. They just know this guy who comes in and he looks every time he fights, he looks absolutely terrible. But BJ Penn of old was was one of the best in the world. So it depends on what Vitor we get. If we get the Vitor, you know, of old, then I'm all for it. If we get the Vitor who's going to be like BJ Penn now, then I think it's a bad thing. I am quite old school when it comes to this sort of thing. Personally, I still consider BJ to be the greatest lightweight of all time. 
yeah, I mean, I'm not going to I'm not going to argue with that. There's other people that are up there, you know, and there's other people that have done well. I mean, have done well off of BJ, but the, the difference of BJ then and BJ now, it's just. Yes. I mean, I think he had something like seven losses in a row in the UFC. It should never have got to that stage. They should have stopped him long before then, because I think that's ruined his legacy. Because people have watched him crumble, if you like, you know. And, and none of us wanted. I, it got to the stage where you didn't want to see a BJ Penn fight because you just felt it was going to be awful and it was going to make you think less of him. When at one time he was, he was amazing. And I think like, the saddest like, thing about those BJ losses as well is if you actually look at look at them and if you actually study them, you actually go back and watch them. There's just these little moments of the old BJ that shine through. I mean, he had a great first round against Dennis Seaver, and you were thinking, hey, BJ actually has a shot at winning this one. But then eventually he starts gassing, and then Seaver goes to take the decision. That's the sad thing for me. It's not just that Penn is a shadow of his former self. It's just that these these moments that remind you of how good he was. Yeah, for me, a a BJ Penn... Uh, prime BJ Penn never loses to a fighter like Dennis Seaver. And that's not to take anything away from Dennis Seaver because Dennis Seaver had a great career in the UFC. But there's levels to this game. And BJ Penn in his prime, the BJ Penn that, that jumped up from lightweight and fought Matt Hughes at Waterweight uh, and shot the world when he submitted him within the first round, that's the BJ Penn that I want to see. The BJ Penn that went and did, did you know, fought GSP. And, and, and I know he lost that fight, but that was still BJ, a, a good prime BJ, not the BJ that went on afterwards. The one that beat Sean Shirk and Kenny Florian and Diego and, Sanchez know, yeah that's the one I mean that if I, that Sanchez one I, I was at that one live as well and I was at Joe Stevenson live as well when he fought yeah, that was in Newcastle that's also your neck of the woods I was there for that one as well that's the BJ I want to see that and that BJ's long gone so if, the, if it's Vitor from that era then great if it's Vitor who's going to be not the way he was then I just it's just not something that I, it, I think it's almost sad because it's watching people trying to recapture what they lost. I am hearing the stories in regards of who um, Vitor could potentially be fighting. The name that's been going around is a, a former Muay Thai champion called Alan Ngalani, 44 years old. Um, doesn't really have the best of records, four wins and five losses, so it's not the highest level competition, but I look at this guy, if you look at images of this guy, he is ridiculously jacked. So. Vitor's going to be facing somebody who's around the same sort of age, same sort of build, maybe not the highest level fighter. I mean, it's ridiculous. Honestly, have you seen Melvin Manhoff? How Manhoff just has this ridiculous sort of muscular physique. Yeah. This is Manhoff times 10. So I'm thinking then, because with, with Vitor, you always got two sides of him. You've got the, the guy who likes to stand and strike, and of course, that's what we kind of saw towards the end. But you also have the guy who, when he was up against someone who was a good striker, he could take people down and he could out-wrestle and out-grapple them and he'd pin them to the mat. You know, a bit like the old ground and pound style. So if we get, if he's fighting against someone who's a tie boxer, for me, that's what we're going to see. Yes. He's going to shoot in and take him down and he's probably going to beat him up within a round. On the, but they're, they're setting that fight up for, for a veto win. But again, fights like that don't interest me either. I don't want to see a fight. I don't want to know the result of a fight before it starts. You mentioned, you mentioned before that you... You're maybe not the biggest fan of one championship, but what what's going to make you sort of sit up and take note of these other MMA promotions? Because there is a lot of talent out there. Obviously, you've got Bellator, the PFL, one. UFC is obviously top dog. What, as somebody who maybe doesn't pay as much focus to these international promotions, what's going to make you sit up and say, hey, this is something I need to check out? 
Uh, it's not really that I don't pay much attention. I'll look out for results and stuff. I just don't have the time to watch all of them. I mean, there's there's that many around now. It's hard to keep up with all of them. And obviously, with me doing what I do on the UK scene, I'm very much keeping up to date what's going on in the UK scene because that's relevant to, to what what I'm doing currently. Uh, and and I still follow the UFC just because it's it's you know it's the, it's the best in the world. And there's never going to be anything for me that's going to be as good as the UFC. The UFC is is the number one for a reason. Uh, but I mean, I still look out for results and things, but. I just don't have the time to watch them all. And on that subject, in terms of the, um, your, obviously your work with Almighty Fighting, we'll talk about this in a lot more detail because we are coming to our final section of the show, which is one of my favourites as well, which is viewer questions. And I'm happy to say this week we actually have some. We've had three questions come in from people. Thank you very much for getting in touch with us on YouTube and getting those posted. Uh, so our first question comes from, I hope I pronounced this right, this is from Donald Newhouse. He sent us two questions. Uh, they're not questions which are maybe on the tip of everybody's tongue, but I think they're very intriguing. First question is, how well do you think Jessica Andrade would fare at flyweight? I feel she's done everything she can at strawweight, but she's still young enough to make the move. Now, for many people who might not be as sort of clued up on the spot, Andrade actually did have a spell at bantamweight early in a UFC run. At this point, there was no strawweight division, so she was left with no option. Uh, a 4-3 record there beat Raquel Pennington, which was probably her best win as a bantamweight, but was let down by her size. Basically, if you took Andrade down, you were pretty much getting an easy win. Moved down to strawweight, became champion there. Would Andrade a flyweight interest you? Yeah, I think so. She's done enough. Uh, she's done enough to warrant if she moved up to follow what she's doing. I, you know, a, a win over Rose was obviously super impressive. I'd like to see her and Rose play that back, to be fair. But she's she's an exciting fighter to watch because she's explosive. So if she opted to go up to upper weight class, I'd, yeah, I'd like to see that. And if she had, you know, one or two wins in that weight class, a, a fight against Shevchenko wouldn't 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 look out of place either. Because Shevchenko's one of these ones again who's a dominant champion anyway. So whoever she faces, you feel they're going to be a huge underdog. But you know, Andrade, former champion, that's a, a, certainly a fight you could promote. I think it depends on which way you look at would it be beneficial for Andrade. In terms of getting herself back into the title picture, I would definitely say move up because a 40-second loss against Whaley, because that fight was so one-sided, she's going to be needing to win, say, four or five fights in a row to get another shot, assuming Whaley stays champion. But if she was to move up to flyweight... And because the flyweight top five is maybe a bit weaker than it is a strawweight, you book her against someone like, say, Chukasian, she wins that fight. That status of being a former champion and the fact that they need these bigger matches in the lesser weight classes, she could very easily get that shot after one fight. So I think from the, from the perspective of what's best for her career, move up to flyweight, in terms of what's best for her physically, I'd say straight, stay strawweight. What Andrade needs to do is she needs to work around her footwork because what's beaten her in these past couple of fights is people who use good movement, can stay on their feet and avoid these sort of flurries into the clinch that Andrade likes to utilise. And that's what Ioana did, that's what Weili did, Rose was doing that in the first round, even Tisha Torres caused the problems in that fight. It's a strange one because I think you're right with what you said about the the 1-1-5 division, it, it's going to take a miracle for her to get another title fight. 
for as long as Whaley's champion because of how dominant Whaley was in that win. It, it, it wasn't a close fight. She's literally rolled through her. So how do you sell that fight again? There's, there's no justification really in giving her that rematch. So I would, and I don't think her moving up to one two five would have that much would would have a, a negative impact on her health because she's not cutting as much weight. Because we know a lot of a lot of these guys and girls they cut so much weight anyway. I mean, look at the ones that have gone up weight. We talked to everyone about the light heavyweight division. The ones that went up for middleweight and have done extremely well. And of course, Thiago Silva, um, Thiago Santos, and Anthony Smith jumped to mind straight away. So moving up weight is. You know, it can be a good thing for some people. So I think I think that would be a good move for her. I, I like that idea, personally. And I think she could cause Shevchenko problems. I wouldn't say that she would win that fight, but I would give her more chance than, say, like a Jessica Rye would over Liz Carmouche. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for now, there's not going to be many people that are going to beat Shevchenko, if anybody. But, you know, she's as good a contender as anybody else in that division. And like you say, it's quite a shallow division because it's still a relatively new division. Uh, and I, it's certainly a fight I'd like to see. I think it would be, you know, I'd, I think she should have a win at that weight class first, at least one win against a reasonable opponent. Uh, but I think that would be a good fight to watch. It's certainly a fight I'd look forward to watching. And I mean, personally, I think flyweight is, it's a lot better than some of the grief it gets online. I personally think it's better than women's bantamweight at this moment. But when we have situations where Lauren Murphy and Roxanne Modafferi, no offense to them two, fantastic stories, but when them two are realistic title contenders, you can see we're still having teething troubles. Yeah, but that's still because of it's still in its infancy, isn't it? I mean, it was the same with with the other like some of the men's divisions. I mean, the flyweight division didn't look great for for a, for a while when that first came on, and then you had a you know a good a, a pretty solid top ten. Then you just got to give it a little bit of time. I think. I still think the division is quite shallow, and I also think there's lots of people now that are getting, lots of women now that are getting into the sport because of these women's divisions that have gone from strength to strength. I mean, there was one time when Dana White said he'd never have women in, yeah. in the UFC. So, you know, if you wanted to train and compete uh, in this sport as a female, then what's what's the motivation? Luckily, there were women out there who still did it anyway, and of course, then Ronda Rousey's opened the door for everybody, and I think people sometimes forget that. But I think as that as the women's division becomes more established. You can have people now that we don't know of yet that are working their way up through the systems and eventually we'll see them in the UFC and we'll see them go on and, and make that top 10, uh, an exciting top 10. But that, that's just going to take time. What we're seeing right now is we're seeing the the sort of the, the girls who watch, say, the Gina Carano fights and some of Ronda Strikeforce fights, we're seeing those girls who were sort of like eight or nine at that time. Now they've grown up and they are mixed martial artists. So we're going to see we're going to see more of them. I think women's MMA is going to get so much better over the next few years. Yeah, I think Invicta helped with that massively, yes. giving them the platform. I think they've done wonders for women's mixed martial arts. But I mean, it's still not as deep as the men's. Of course, oh, it's no. not. We've been around longer, but you know, you give it five years' time, for example. I mean, I obviously see it at grassroots level. So I see women fight on my show, uh, amateur level, and some of the talent that's coming through. Obviously, they're not there yet where, where, we, where we're talking about, but honestly, they will be in the future. You give them, give them a chance to build themselves up and get the experience. Some of the talent I've seen on my show, and that, this is a low-level show compared to the UFC, of course, it's, uh, it's amazing. What would you say is the percentage, say, from like how many fights would you say are women's fights compared to the men? Do you get a lot of interest in taking part in, of ladies wanting to take part in Almighty? Yeah, I would, I would say it's still... Compared to men, it's still very small. You're looking at less than 10%. Uh, 
Uh, if we have a fight card, say, of, of 20 fights, um, which is quite common, you're probably looking at one or two of them being women's fights. Uh, but it's it's hard because there's just not as many women at the moment that are still doing it. But then the ones that come through, um, it's still a, it's finding the ones that when you get whenever you're trying to match something at my level, you're looking at obviously the weight class has got to be right, and then you're looking at the experience. So I might have five or six women that come through asking to be to fight. But then if one of them's had four fights, one of them's had one fight, then it's not right to put them together. If, then if you look at weights as well, so that's what makes it a little bit difficult. You tend to have a lot more option for the men because there's a lot more people uh, at the weight classes. But some of the the women's fights, they're, they're, they're great to watch. There's been a, there's been a couple uh, in the last, say 18, say no, the last 12 months that have fought on my show that I think have potential to go. go. There's three in particular that are jumping out to me that have the potential to go far and make a name for themselves uh, in the professional ranks when they eventually turn pro. Uh, Donald has also posted us another question here, so we're going to get that one out. Thank you very much for posting this, Donald. He asks, would you be interested in Connor versus Colby at welterweight? I'm, I'm one of these that I, I can't stand Connor. I just, I'll watch anything that they do with him because I watch all of the UFC, but if Connor never fought again, I wouldn't be sad. Big move, big, very controversial. I'm expecting a lot of down votes for that one because, I mean, Connor is a very divisive character. I'm, I'm in the boat where I like what Connor brings to the sport. I like the extra eyeballs because I want, I know that MMA is, MMA needs these sort of big, larger than life characters. He needs these mainstream stars to bring the money in and make the sport as healthy as it can. So I like Connor from that regard. In terms of the person itself, there are a lot of issues that I need to work around. In terms of Connor versus Colby, I think a lot of this is Donald thinking about the press conferences. Because Connor yeah. likes to likes to play the trash talk. Colby's built his entire reputation around that. And I think he's just thinking, what would it be like if these two sort of squared off more so in the press conferences rather than actually the quality of the fight itself? I think the fight would still be good. And it'd be the fight that I'd watch. And I'd want Colby to win because I like him less than what I like Connor. Because, again, some of the stuff that Colby said, I mean, when he's... The comment he made about Matt Hughes, I just think that was disgusting. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, and the, the, I just find one of the things I love about mixed martial arts, and I think the, probably the biggest thing I love about mixed martial arts is the respect. When two guys or girls go out there and they beat the, you know, the living crap out of each other, and then they shake hands afterwards or they hug afterwards, you know, I love that side to it. I don't like all the the, the comments like. Robbie Lawler should know from his teammate that when the trains come and you get off the tracks. I mean, that's I think that's disgusting. Or, or when Conor McGregor jumps the cage and attacks a referee because he thinks he's bigger than everyone. I, I think that's disgusting. And that just puts me off the pair of them, to be honest with you. After they fight, I'll watch it. But if, if Conor McGregor never fought in MMA again, I wouldn't be sad. I think the issue most people have with Colby, I don't think it's so much the actual character itself because... We've seen people play these sort of larger-than-life personalities which are maybe a bit different to what they actually are in real life. I think Joanna is somebody who likes to play the trash talk, likes to sort of present this idea of, oh, I'm the buggy woman and I'm, gonna, I'm coming for you, Rose, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The issue people have, I think, with Colby is not so much the character itself, it's that the character is so false. But I mean, if you if you do if you do want to if you do want to wind people up, then sort of Trump supporting MAGA lover, 
that's your perfect archetype. But it's just, everything just feels so preordained. I just think there's lines that you don't cross, and I just think there's certain things that have gone on. The, the, the comment about Matt Hughes should never yeah. have been made. It was, it was, I mean, that, that guy was someone who, you know, without Matt Hughes, you, you haven't really got a weight division. He's the one that, you know, obviously he lost his title to GSP, but before GSP, he was the dominant champion, and he, he's, he, was, he was the chuckle down of that division, if you like. Uh, and, and to, 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 to what happened to him with the, with, with the train was horrendous. I mean, I watched the documentary. I'll, I'll be honest, I cried watching that documentary. It was heartbreaking uh, to, to watch what he was to what he became. So I just think, I, I just, I, I really, really, really detest stuff like that. It just, I just find it really upsetting. What's your opinion on Cejudo? Because he's, he's quite similar. He's sort of playing up to the cameras, trying to present this sort of, what Triple C's the, the character, isn't it? Yeah, I haven't seen him do anything yet that I've really disliked. Uh, I, you know, I like his bravado. I, I love watching him fight. I mean, him versus Dominic Cruz, if that fight happens, that's a fight I'm very, very excited for. For me, so, I mean, Cejudo's win over Demetrius Johnson, it was really, really was a very, very close fight. But then when he come and did what he did to TJ Dillashaw, that was just, for me, that's what took him to being a superstar. I think the big difference between Cejudo and Colby, though, is that I think people know that Cejudo is playing a character. Because, and a lot of the stuff that he sort of, I think a lot of it's sort of self-mocking of himself. It's very um, he sort of plays sort of like the delusional heel character. And when he was going for the whole Bobby Viggs thing where he was saying, oh, I'll fight Shevchenko and become intergender champion, all that sort of stuff. You were laughing. Yeah. You found it funny. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was good. But there's a line that you don't cross. And for me, he hasn't crossed that line. No. Our final question in, I hope I get this one right. The pronunciation is Arona Hellasaur. He asks, should Tony have taken this fight against Gagey? I have faith in him that he'll win, but ultimately he has little to gain and everything to lose if he's unable to beat Justin. You know what, it's hard because a fighter wants to fight. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, Ferguson Gaethje, under any circumstance, is a phenomenal matchup. You know, obviously we're all disappointed because of the Ferguson Khabib. Uh, that fight's just been crazy the way it's gone by the wayside so many times. But yeah, I can see... I can see why he took the fight. I can also understand the point of view of the question because he did lose his fight. He loses the fight with Khabib. Then, as a fighter, every time you go into a fight, surely you think you're going to win regardless. So, yes, I think he should have took the fight. I think what a lot of people are maybe forgetting about as well is Tony Ferguson isn't that active of a fighter. He only ever fights once or twice a year. And he's got a family, he's got a wife. He wants to obviously try and make some money. And the guy is 36 now. Are we just trying to see somebody who is, who knows that he needs to make as much money as he can before he, his body starts failing him and he, he maybe starts taking a few losses? Is this a, a guy just looking out for his family, just trying to cash in when he can? He's a phenomenal fighter as well. He's Fantastic. so exciting to watch. I think he's right to take the fight. I mean, at the end of the day, who knows what's around the corner? Who knows when the Khabib fight is going to be on the table again, if it's going to be on the table again? So this is what you're being offered at this moment. The fight is sellable. You're going to get paid well for it because of, of how good you are, because of how good your opponent is, and because of how many people want to see this fight. So I think it'd be mad not to take it personally. And our final questions are obviously uh, relating to you, Ray. Uh, Almighty Fighting Championship. For anybody who's wanting to try and check out the promotion, 
Could you explain Almighty to those sort of new fans who'll be sort of Googling your name right now? Yeah, so Almighty Fighting Championship, we're, we're a regional show uh, based based in the UK. We, we predominantly do shows in Yorkshire, and then last year we started doing shows in Liverpool. Uh, next year we're hoping to take it a bit more uh, more nationwide around the UK, so I've got to wait for this lockdown to be over, but my plans are next year to to take us to the northeast, to take us to North Wales, to take us to the Midlands in Coventry, which is where I'm from originally, and to take us to uh, down south, uh, around the outskirts of London. That's what my plan is for next year. But I need to, we need to wait for this all to be over. But yeah, so we're a regional show. We've been running for about four years. We've done 17 shows so far. We've got a great reputation on the UK scene. We've had quite a lot of guys that have come through our show that have gone on to fight uh, on bigger shows. Uh, you know, some names I'll throw out here. Fabian Edwards is a is a currently a star in Bellator. His last amateur fight was on Almighty Fighting Championships. Uh, Jake Hadley, who won the EFC World Title in South Africa, when he went over there and caused a big upset, he's fought on Almighty. Uh, Jack Cartwright, who's the current Cage Warriors Bantamweight Champion, his last fight before fighting for that title was headlining Almighty and winning there. Uh, Luke Shanks is due to fight for uh, a Cage Warriors title. He he won he headlined our show in Liverpool last year. Uh, Jack Grant fought for a, for the for the lightweight title, of course, lost to Jai Herbert, who's now in the UFC. Jack Grant fought uh, twice on Almighty. So what we are, we're, we're a, a, a solid regional show who provides a good platform for up-and-coming talent. And if you do well on our show, there's a very good opportunity, a good chance you'll get picked up by a, a, a bigger show, a show like Cage Warriors or a show like, you know, Bellator. We've seen others that have come through, Justin Burness and Luke Westwood, Kieran Lister have, have all fought on Almighty and have all fought on Bellator as well. So we're a, we're a, a real solid platform for, for people, for up-and-coming up and coming fighters. So from your perspective as a promoter, how are you planning for the future? Are you thinking to yourself, there's a good chance that this could be over by June, I'm going to try and put on a show for that date, or what? how are you approaching this from the promotional perspective? So there's there's a couple of main concerns for me as a, as a promoter. So say, for example, this was over in June. Uh, firstly, I'd be thinking, well, how are fighters training going at the moment because realistically you want eight to 12 weeks to prepare for a fight so if if, the, if it's over in june and we do a show in july in theory they've only had four weeks back at, at back training at their gym so i would think that would be too soon i'd want to wait for them to be able to do a proper training camp the other concern of course is is the economical uh, impact of what's going on so how are people going to be financially if you're going to come to a night out to watch a show you know it's you're probably going to it's probably going to cost you a couple hundred pounds in total with paying for your ticket and for, for any beer money and maybe accommodation and are people going to have that disposable income after this is finished so I personally don't want to rush back into doing a show I want to wait for this to finish I want to wait for I'm not sure as well how people are going to be whether people are going to want to be in large crowds because of what's going on with the virus being spread there's still going to be a hangover for that so my thoughts are I want to wait and see I want to wait and see football come back because once people happen to be in a football stadium with 15,000 or 20,000 people, then I know they're happy to be, uh, you know, a, a, an MMA show or a concert or a or whatever. So I want to see that come back. And then once I see that, then that's when I'd like to, to get back up and running. A pr provisionally, I had a show booked for May for Liverpool, which, is, which of course we cancelled. And we've rescheduled that for the back end of July. We also got a show in July in Yorkshire. So I'm, I'm, I'm expected not to do those two shows because I don't think the world's going to be right by that point. Uh, so after that, we've got a show in October in Barnsley, Yorkshire, and a show in November in Liverpool. 
I'd like to think we'll be back up to normal by then and I'll be able to put those two shows on to see the year out on a high and then obviously you know once this is over I can start my planning for next year and start looking at my schedule and start seeing if I can book these other places around the country and start making us a, a nationwide promotion because at the minute we're, we're a northern promotion I'd like us to be nationwide and we'll certainly give you all the support for doing so and I have to say as well as a Newcastle United fan I am certainly hoping that the football comes back soon yeah, it looks like big things though at the minute. The next Man City. Well, we don't know yet. It's still still up in the air. I'm not going to be getting the cans out until it's actually confirmed and we see our Saudi Arabian Sheikh holding the black and white scarf at St James's. Um, I'm not going to be getting my hopes up just yet. And yeah, if you do need it, if you do need a commentator or somebody to interview people for the North East shows, then I'm very happy to do it, mate. Excellent, that sounds good. Yeah, definitely we'll look at that when, uh, when we're up and running. And on that cheery note, I want to say a big thank you to everybody who has been tuning in for this latest episode of INC Radio. My name's been Carl Bainbridge, that's been Ray Thompson. Thank you very much for having me on, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure, Ray. We hope that you enjoyed the show and we'll be back next week, hopefully Claire will as well. And we'll be discussing more stories from the world of mixed martial arts. This has been the INC, thank you for watching.